0: Thanks for joining us for another long-form interview episode where we sit down with the best and brightest minds in the cocktail and spirits world and drink in all the knowledge they have to impart in their area of expertise. This time around, I had the pleasure of speaking with Hakeem Hamid, who's the beverage director of a really excellent speakeasy-style cocktail bar called Nocturne here in D.C., We spoke about a new globe-trotting menu he's recently developed, really taking our time to explore that process. So whether you're contemplating creating a menu for an event you're hosting at your home, or if you're just curious to peer behind the curtain and develop a better understanding about what it takes to put together a spectacular menu, this episode will not disappoint. But before we get too carried away, I think... This is a great time for you to make yourself a drink. In keeping with the theme of this show, I thought I'd share the first cocktail that I personally developed and named way back when I was first beginning to experiment with spirits and cocktails, and when the embitterment bitters lineup consisted solely of aromatic and orange bitters. Oh, how far we've come. The cocktail is called the Flower of Normandy, ou si vous préférez la Fleur de Normandie? Now, I wanna backpedal almost immediately here and clarify that this cocktail is not on the level with the sorts of drinks we talk about on the menu at Nocturne Bar. It's basically a Manhattan, and I'm shaking my head right now because I can't believe I thought it was so darn original when I first created it. But that's what happens when you look back on the early days of a project with the benefit of distance and perspective. So here's the recipe. To make the Flower of Normandy cocktail, you'll need two ounces of Calvados, which is a French barrel-aged apple brandy, three quarters of an ounce of elderflower liqueur, like Saint Germain, and several dashes of orange bitters. I, of course, use our embitterment orange bitters. As I mentioned, this is kind of like a Manhattan, so you combine these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for 15 to 20 seconds until it's well chilled and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with an orange twist. It's a delightful, bright, and perfumed drink that's like walking through an orchard bursting with fruit on a sunny day in the early fall. The Flower of Normandy is also a great way to start exploring the wonderful world of Calvados, which is definitely one of my all-time favorite spirits. So if you're having a hard time finding a liquor store that sells it in your neck of the woods, rest assured that it's a search worth undertaking. I promise. Returning to the world of cocktail development and menu planning, some of the things Hakeem and I cover in this really fun conversation include... How to think about the difference between bartenders, mixologists, and beverage directors, and how Hakeem's curiosity and insatiable imagination propelled him into the role of beverage director at Nocturne. The roles that bar design, vision, and leadership all play in the execution and ultimate success or failure of a cocktail menu. How Hakim started this menu with a single crucial cocktail that then led him around the world and even permeated his dreams as the menu took shape. The relationship between food and drinks on a cocktail menu and how to go about pairing them with balance and delight. How to think about guests as renewable resources, capitalizing on relationships rather than high volume and high profit margins which member of the Expendables to grab a drink with in London, and much, much more. Nocturne Bar is a sister establishment to another bar across the river in Alexandria, Virginia, called Captain Gregory's. Both bars are speakeasy style, and both are hidden on the premises of donut shops in a local chain called Sugar Shack. We definitely focus on the menu aspect this episode, but someday I feel like we may return to the speakeasy side of the equation, so not to worry. Wrapping up, I just want to say that I learned a ton in this conversation. I certainly don't think of myself as an expert in menu planning, but just the sheer amount of work and attention to detail involved in the process really blew my mind. Just a ton of respect for the people who make that part of their day-to-day lives. And with that said, I'm delighted to offer you this excellent interview with Nocturne Beverage Director Hakim Hamid. Hakim, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank uh, you for having me. So, can you talk a little bit about your background for our listeners? Tell them how you got into bartending, how you kind of worked your way through the ranks to become a beverage director, and I guess, wrap up by telling us where you are right now, where we're sitting and uh, what goes on here.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Definitely started organically in terms of being a bartender or becoming a beverage director. First started my career helping uh, to open venues and with that experience, um, I guess the sharks were out and they were like, well, this kid has the experience to open up a venue, which is very difficult to do in our business. When the life expectancy when I first got started was two and a half years for a restaurant here in DC, they wanted their best foot forward to make sure everything was in place. Starting um, as humbly as a Ruby Tuesdays to uh, Clyde's, Lucky Strike, Bar Louie, some of your favorite places, Coco Sala. Um, So doing this for over two decades, I never was hired as a bartender except for once. I was once hired as a bartender. And even then, it wasn't as in-depth of some of the bartending that I've done before or have seen done before. It was very traditional Manhattan, old-fashioned martini, Bloody Marys on the weekend, and maybe a mimosa uh, to get the day started. However, throughout my career in traveling from cities like Chicago, New York, Atlanta, and helping other very successful brands market build reopen other venues it turned into a very easy process for me so a lot of it came self-taught thinking of all right what's chef doing in the kitchen since i'm free now or what these guys doing behind the bar since i'm free now versus let me retype this sop that is not the very romantic part of the business i think the very romantic part is what the guys do in the kitchen and behind the bar and that's where I would spend my free time, when I wasn't doing necessarily the task at hand. Um, after that, it was probably moving to Chicago where I really fell in love with what it was to be a bartender or to kind of give a damn about what you're consuming or what you're going to have someone else consume. And Johnny Abens, one of my best mates, I went to all of the training to open up the Witt Hotel in Chicago, despite the fact I was only there to be a front of the house manager. And as the meeting is wrapping up, Johnny's like, man, we're going to rock this bar. I'm like, yeah, you guys are going to do a great job at it. (laughs) He's (laughs) like, wait, aren't you a bartender? I'm like, no, I just wanted to see what was going on in the meetings. He was like, oh, man, we should hang out. And we hang out for the first night, and I order what is still one of my favorite drinks, Belvedere, martini, straight up, lemon twist, in and out, rinse with dry vermouth.
0: Okay. And he's yeah. like,
1: oh, okay, you know what you like. I'm like, I know that I like it. <laughs> he's like, why aren't you ordering gin? I said, I'm sorry? He's like, why aren't you ordering gin? I'm like, because I don't like gin. He's like, have you ever had gin? I was like, yeah, when I was really young, and like it was probably the worst thing I've ever done in my life. He's like, gin and vodka are the same thing. Gin just has the love in it. And ever since that day, I took, like, that and, like, really put it to the test with everything. It's like, why are we drinking these things? And if it is lacking something, what other element can be added to something to make it come full circle, if you will? And I would say that's when I fell in love with the bartending aspect of it without even being a bartender. It was more so uh, independent research on my own. Um, so coming back home after being gone for close to 10 years, opening and consulting. And home, I, home is D.C.? Home is Washington, D.C., yep, born and raised. I had this beautiful opportunity to join the Nocturne <laughs> Bar D.C.'s team, if you will, as their newest beverage director. Uh, the venue's been open for about a year. I've taken over uh, a little over three months now, um, and it's pretty exciting to be here it's if i had designed this space myself i don't think i would have been able to do as good of a job as the previous guys did design this place because it's overly conceptualized and i think a lot of times especially in my experience just because you have the money to do something doesn't necessarily mean that (laughs) you should do it (laughs) and i've seen so many wallets design bars and restaurants i'm like you could have just gotten any decent bartender even home bartender and we'll let you know why is the ice bin so far <laughs> <laughs> or like why are the guns on the wrong side the soda guns are like man that sink is a mile away it's no way we can you know doh is going to let this sink stay all the way over here and you know this one is so thought out and i think it really speaks to showcase not only the product the glassware but the cocktails themselves yeah um sitting in a super intimate Setting. For those of you who have never been to Nocturne, it's very much so having cocktails at night underneath of the stars in like modern day or futuristic Paris, France. Yeah. That's what I would compare it to. And the only light source or the primary light source is the illuminated um, bar top. That's probably the only way you could even read the menu, also, as I have these really cool. Um, Transparent menus that are only visible when they sit on the bar, so it's it's pretty badass. So that was an afterthought for someone who put this bar, <laughs> fortunately, and in, in place for me to utilize as the canvas to present my drinks.
0: Yeah, yeah. Pretty the, cool we'll we'll definitely put a picture of that menu up on the show notes page. it, it is really neat. It's it, it's nothing like what I've what I've seen in bars before, and uh, it's. Almost, it's got that futuristic vibe to it, almost like a Star Trek situation. where It's like
1: Star Trek meets Tron.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. And I want to return to not just the physical menu, but Mm -hmm. also the things on it. Um, Because what we're ideally going to talk about uh, during this interview is what it took for you to design this menu and Mm -hmm. to kind of bring it to life. Okay. Uh, So you're the beverage director here. And I guess the first question I want to ask before we even get into the menu Mm -hmm. is what does a beverage director do that's different than a bartender, I guess? Okay.
1: My sense, there's a few other words I have to throw in there, which is mixologists. Um, Sure. I'm not that concerned with what the title is as long as whatever it is that I'm presenting is respected the way that I intended it to be but I would say a bartender in the classiest sense was probably the proprietor and owner of said bar and he tended that bar. I think in its modern um, interpretation of the word, I would say bartender is to line cook as mixologist is to executive chef. So then when you go and you say, well, what is a beverage director? I would say respectfully using these comparisons of the hospitality industry, I would say, Um, executive chef slash owner like there's a lot of ownership and pride that goes into every little detail and that includes how loud the music is and what's being played it's are the lighting levels right is there is this the right glassware to represent this cocktail in the right way and more importantly for me in the right light Literally, there's been some glassware that I've seen like in the daylight and I bring it in here. I'm like, this isn't going (laughs) to work. So I would say that's where I see, you know, what it is to be a mixologist versus a bartender. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's some incredibly talented line cooks as well as (laughs) bartenders. But I think the tools and the expectations are different for bartenders versus mixologists. I think if anyone goes ahead and puts the label of mixologists on themselves, they're they're putting the uh, the the bar kinda high in terms of what the expectations are from everyone. Uh, the same way if you know you walked into a restaurant and the executive chef presents you with the food, it's at a benchmark that needs to knock off a few, you know, key elements that you would expect coming from like the head guy in charge like this is his menu this is his dream uh, versus the bartender can definitely execute it with the right leadership yeah and and I think that's where beverage directors start to kind of sway back and forth in terms of what the responsibilities are and that depends on the concept of their venue versus what their vision is. And there's often where the concept of a venue isn't aligned with what their vision is. And at which point you're still trying to mold your vision to fit inside of this concept that wasn't yours in the first place. So it's like, how do I lead a guy when I'm not the leader that I need to be within the space also? You, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Those are the, there's the space itself. It, the seems, space. it seems like there's a lot of, I guess sometimes competing, sometimes ideally everything's working together. Right. Uh, And so what you're saying is if the space doesn't fit what the beverage director wants to do, or if the beverage director's concept or dream doesn't really jive with the, what the, perhaps the owner wants to do with the space, right. maybe in terms of the number of seatings <laughs> per night or the average cost per cocktail. That Those are some things that can be the difference between a, a bar and a concept that's clicking on all cylinders versus one that comes in and seems like you're hitting a few wrong notes.
1: Right, absolutely. And that's when we move and start immediately comparing to the movie Chef. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's exactly it. And it's like, well, this guy has this dream, and you would think that the venue was all that he ever wanted it to be, which it was in the beginning. But now the workspace, because butting Heads with ownership, you know, forces him to like derail his dream. However, for the better for all of North America, as far as I'm concerned, he's a hell of a pioneer. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's talk about this menu and approach it like a little bit of a case study, I guess. And... Let's start at the very, very beginning. How did the idea for this menu come into being, and and what was the, I guess, the need for this menu? Okay, Um, I think
1: this menu was necessary for anyone who had been to Nocturne before. Nocturne had put together and executed a very mind-blowing experimental bar with their cocktails in a way that everything was delivered. Uh, when I decided to join the team and the previous team was on their way out to pursue other opportunities that came about for them, which is incredible, I respectfully wanted everyone to know that they weren't here anymore. So if anyone you know, had previously seen their style or genre or physical menu, they knew beyond a reasonable doubt that something had changed dramatically and we're really looking forward to it. Um, The reason for the menu itself and the way that it's set up and designed, the one of the greatest things that we've been able to do um, in the hospitality industry, which I'm forever grateful is, is on a long enough timeline, we'll meet everyone in the world because everyone has to eat. And typically with that comes a drink Sure. So I wanted to make a global experience for all of our consumers to enjoy. And it goes from, my menu's broken up currently into four regions, kind of five, if you will, the Middle East, Scandinavia, the Americas, featuring North and South together, mm-hmm. Western Europe. Um, and, you know, I let my guests know, this menu is an opportunity for you to travel around the world without looking for a babysitter or a passport or book an Airbnb. Sure you know, or or taken off for too long a time. You spend a few hours with us down here and we'll definitely take you around the world. And um, one of the guests said to me, well, my region isn't on here. I said, I respectfully uh, acknowledge that. Uh, Most of, (laughs) all of our regions aren't on there yet. However, this menu should serve as your Kevin Bacon. Somehow, some way, one of these regions will correlate to you, whether it's one of your first jobs that you ever had, or the boyfriend who you met when you were on vacation skiing, or reminding you of this little tea shop that is also local that just gives you that transdescent, I traveled around the world just with a few sips. So it may not be right in your face, this is what it is and how it correlates to you. But if we play the Kevin Bacon game, I'm sure six degrees or less, it's gonna come back to you for sure.
0: Yeah. I like that uh, associative aspect of cocktails. And I think one of the projects in putting together a menu that is, like the thrilling challenge, is trying to get it just right. To to make (laughs) sure that the cocktail itself, which has its own set of requirements, also meets that kind of conceptual set of requirements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess, how did some of these cocktails pop up on the menu? I'm, I'm interested in, like, did the Middle East and Scandinavia and the Americas come first and then Western Europe arrived? Mm-hmm. And like, like, what was the actual, like, bit-by-bit bit assemblage of this menu like? So,
1: it was literally bit-by-bit. Bit. The very first cocktail on the menu was, or conceptualized for the menu, was Nuit Noir, which is the first course in Western Europe's region. And the reason for that, and uh, Nuit Noir is translating to The Black Knight. When I heard about the concept for Nocturne and how everything kind of tied into our sister restaurant, which is Captain Gregory's, I really took it to heart because these guys really gave a damn about what was happening every aspect of the way. And I wanted to kind of like with the first cocktail really tell the story and tie it in without being too cheesy. So as we first walked into the venue today and you come down the stairs and the classical music is playing, um, you're walking into the abandoned apartment in Paris, which is uh, one of the first cocktails on our menu at our sister restaurant a few years ago. And that's how the two would correlate. And then as we trans, uh, um, traveled through the door or the portal into nocturne and you're back into that space of you know i was just in this abandoned apartment in paris i think i'm still in paris but now it's nighttime and you know i think i'll have cocktails underneath of the stars with my friends that's what this cocktail is supposed to represent using all french ingredients uh, including champagne and then making this cocktail completely pitch black using activated charcoal Simulates the night sky, and as you watch the tiny bubbles on the illuminated bar rise to the top, is to mimic the stars twinkling at night, which just is a little bit of a nod to Don Perignon as well. Mm. So that was the first one because I really wanted to start telling this story and make it relate so seamlessly without being so in your face and so cheesy, relating what the overall concept was and how Nocturne came to be. And then from there, it's like, all right, well, what's the next thing that you want to do when you leave Paris, France? Well, you want to see the rest of the beautiful parts of Europe and, you know, you go straight into Italy. So bit by bit is how the menu came about. And I didn't pay attention to the regions until about 50 cocktails in. And I'm like, like my mind is going crazy and I'm like, I can't keep up with the recipes. And I'm like sketching everything out and I'm like let me stop trying to finish a region and let me try to make this the best world tour ever. And then the regions will just pop up on their own. And that's what happened. And it's, I said to myself was like, well, we're gonna start in America, you know? So let's see some of the highlights that we'll hit in America. And then with all the things that are going on politically, I'm like, there's too much divide. Let's just combine North and South America. So you'll see a lot of great things on the menu. If I can just mention one that I'm quite proud of. Please, the, yeah. the ojo de piña, which I always have to give a little uh, disclaimer to. When you look at the ingredients, pisco, amero, pineapple, passion fruit, uh, everyone thinks it's going to be a sweet cocktail. However, it's not. It's very balanced, and it quite literally is an old-fashioned using all South American ingredients. And just because of the pisco, I try to give like a little nod to the Pisco Sour by using egg white. And it's just this absolutely fantastic cocktail just combining two regions that appear to have this divide, but in actuality really don't. So it was it was quite enlightening in terms of a lot of the research that had to go into this, especially Scandinavia. Hmm. Uh, it's, I bet. <laughs> it's the one that I knew I was the most attracted to because I knew the least about it. And my research started with texting and calling my chefs that I work with from all over, and like, so how do you feel about this ingredient? You've actually been, and like, what would you think of Noma, and and what documentaries do you recommend? And that's exactly what happened. And you know, I'm watching Anthony Bourdain fifty times, and Andrew Zimmern, and all these documentaries that I could find, and just the research. And it, I wanted to become this really earthy, respectful of the land region that told a story and this region literally tells a story from beginning to end. I hope everyone comes in and everyone's experience is different so I won't tell the story sure, um, as it will evolve based on how you choose your cocktails. But it was super sexy and romantic to see some of the ingredients come together in such a rare way. And I'll just talk about the north sedan, which means the north side. This is an all alcohol, cocktail or booze forward, if you will, using over three vermouths, vodka, chartreuse, saffron, fennel, celery, pears, rhubarb, strawberry. And it's very of the earth and it's very clean. And it's so picturesque once you see the presentation. And in my mind, I'm like, none of these ingredients make sense. Mm. (laughs) You know, just working with Like the teacher said, two plus two equals four, right? And then, you know, someone like me comes along and is like, well, what about eight divided by two? It's like, (laughs) (laughs) like, is there another way to get there? But just using that very novice and juvenile thinking, I'm like, none of this stuff makes sense. And then I'm pushing myself and having dreams about the cocktails. I'm like, no, it does make sense. Once I finally build the ratio to have everything go together.
0: Yeah, I I like that, the dream logic aspect of of design. Uh, I actually have a question about that, uh, the the Nora Sedan. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you said you're using multiple types of vermouth, Mm -hmm. and then, okay, so I got vodka and chartreuse as, you know, boozy, spiritist elements. And then with the saffron, fennel, and celery, were those actually used as garnishes, or were they used in an infusion or a syrup at some point?
1: Oh, fantastic. So the fennel and celery are infused in the vodka the ratio for that varies because very, um, agriculturally everything doesn't taste the same every time. And I prefer for not all of the cocktails to taste exactly the same all the time because they're organic, they're evolving. And it goes back to another part about my menu, which I absolutely love is when they say, Oh, well, uh, when's your next menu coming out? Is this seasonal? Well, it's winter here, but it's not on other regions. So, I don't necessarily have to keep up with our seasons, uh, so sort to of speak, and I think uh, the Noor Sedan, as well as several other cocktails, uh, kind of take a nod towards that understanding, um, for sure. The saffron was a last minute element where it's almost as a, a sweet tincture, if you will. I didn't need so much more bitter as I needed something to round off some of these sharper flavors from celery, fennel, and just the vodka by itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I used it in that way and it was an afterthought. Um, I think I had another dream about the cocktail (laughs) and the chartreuse was doing something really special for me um, when it was presented and it had this beautiful yellowish chartreuse color to it and then once the saffron um, tincture was finished, and I added it to the cocktail, it got even brighter and almost radioactive. And I was like, "This is badass! Like, this is now. Now it's there. Yeah. N- now it's there. Now it's ready to be served and enjoyed." And I tell everyone to take it with a grain of salt. And a gentleman came in a few weeks ago, and I'm doing the whole spiel, right? And he cuts me off, and he's a he's a man's man, right? I'm not gonna completely say like fi die new york city but he's a man's man he's like look i'm gonna cut you off right there i'm like yes sir (laughs) he's like i'm not coming back to your place ever again what cocktail do i need to have that i can't leave this place without and i'll tell everybody and they'll come in and they'll have that cocktail i said say no more i'll bring over the Norris and on in just a moment sir (laughs) right (laughs) Fantastic. Um, thankfully he's been here at least eight times since then so i think he liked it
0: that's Um, that's awesome
1: but that's one of my babies and I'm quite proud of how she came about over like the evolution. But that was a, that was a tricky one for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I wanna return really quickly to the Nuit Noir, the, uh-huh. the the cocktail that you were speaking about as the kind of bridge between your sister establishment, Captain Gregory's, which is also a speakeasy, which is also in, you know, it's, it's across the river in Alexandria, but mm-hmm. same, same kind of ownership. And I used to be a poetry teacher and when I was teaching workshops, oftentimes what I would talk to my students about, it, it wouldn't be uh, like the sort of thing that you would expect from like a public school poetry class where you're reading the poem and the teacher says, okay, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Where's the symbolism, point out a metaphor, what's the rhyme scheme? Right. We would very much more approach it in a more, not necessarily like a dream logic way like we were just talking about, but I would ask them, what's the heart of the poem? Mm-hmm. And people who didn't really have any basic training in poetry would understand like, okay, I'm just looking for the heart of this thing. To me, what's the heart of it? And sometimes different people would have different answers, but at least that would spark a conversation. Right. And so I, I like how you for the very first cocktail of this menu picked something that was sort of like at the heart of what the the establishment and the the one that it kind of came out of the the kind of offshoot um, kind of what that establishment was going for. And then from there, from that seed, other things just sort of started popping up. Uh, And I guess my question is, do you think in your experience this sort of, highly associative and winding path is very typical of menu planning when you're planning out a cocktail menu? Or would you say that that's more something that has to do with your approach to things and the way that you think about the cocktails?
1: Okay. Um, I think it's always been the way that I viewed cocktail development and you making a cohesive menu uh, is to make it make sense. One of the reasons why this was so important to me is because this is one of the few venues in my career that was here before me. So I didn't want to be disrespectful to anything that was, you know, put in place with intent and then like I kind of overlooked it because I was just doing my own thing and I, I didn't want to have that style of myopic leadership going into the, the menu because then it's just, you know, a random menu that you find anywhere that'll have. You know the same seven cocktails and that's that's not what i want it to be now in general i think the recognition of having these cohesive menus that do uh, nod to the its existence and its history is becoming more common or at least if it's not more common it's now the more fun way to be creative i would say for bartenders and mixologists and you know whoever's behind the bar it's It's one thing to say, you know, Hakeem, I'm opening up a hotel and, you know, I'll I'll need 20 cocktails per venue in the hotel and make them taste great. That's very easy. It's so easy. And then, you know, on the flip side, the guy comes to me, he's like, I'm also opening a bed and breakfast that's been in the family for generations and this is the land that it's on. And, you know, my grandmother, she still helps out. And that's a whole different set of responsibilities that you have to respect when you put together a beverage program and you know cocktails for that it was like well what was nana drinking you yeah. know <laughs> let's see if we can tell her story and convey that in a cocktail and that takes on a, a much bigger set of responsibilities and and research and just homage to what has happened before you were actually in play
0: yeah that's a really interesting type of consciousness to bring into the situation because i think when most people probably most listeners out there who aren't familiar with, with what it takes to, to operate in the bar and restaurant industry, what what they think of is probably just the technical steps and the things that you need to put in place. And you know, the more mythological things like the history of the place just mm-hmm. don't even come up. So it's it's really interesting that you bring that up. I'm I, I definitely want to to think more about that. But as as we look at this menu um, who are the other players involved? So obviously you were the chief kind of architect of it, but did did any other folks have have an influence in in how this developed?
1: Um, Absolutely. Um, Not to be (laughs) too cheesy or sound like this was (laughs) um, premeditated, but uh, our corporate executive chef, Brandon McDermott, who I had a history with before, just as being a patron of his venues in DC before, He does not drink like a chef, (laughs) which... What what does that mean? um, He doesn't like booze-forward cocktails. He is a fan of uh, a slightly sweeter cocktail or dessert cocktail, which is the complete opposite of my palate. So knowing that you have to make a menu to please the masses, it was very important for me to make sure this menu didn't just taste good to me and whose other palate to inquire upon than not only a chef, but your chef. And having the relationship that he and I had, it was a new way to get the honest feedback that's necessary. A lot of times when I first develop a cocktail, I have uh, people who have no correlation with the industry at all tasted first because that's the palate that will most recently enjoy the cocktails before I go into such a prolific palette, i.e. other beverage directors and bar owners and some of my best mates are around the corner, because I, I can't have the vision clouded this way so soon when developing a cocktail newly. So it's like, I need a very honest answer. I need the the opinion of someone who didn't use the word viscosity within the last two weeks, you know what I mean? And get right. And get his or her honest feedback. Then once I do get that feedback, and, you know, I make whatever changes that I feel as those necessary. Then I do want a more prolific um, uh, look into it. And, you know, there's very few cocktails that have gone into play anywhere that I've worked or consulted that didn't get the last opinion from some of my best mates who are bartenders and mixologists and whose opinions I hold in very high regard, whose um Constructive criticism went into play immediately and stayed on my menu, and you know I always give respect to them when it's when it's due. And it was something as simple from switching from lemon juice to lime juice, it, you, you know what I mean. But because I was so close to the project, I'm like, this tastes amazing, and everyone says it tastes amazing. And then, you know, I, I get the the palate and the and the right palate and the feedback from it. And I'm like, if I thought this was amazing before, this is. Absolutely outstanding. Who could think that this perfect thing could be elevated, right? Yeah. And then, you know, lo and behold, it happens.
0: Yeah, I like that. The process, almost like sharpening a knife. You you go with the rougher. You go with the rougher stone first, and then as as you get that edge to it, you kind of refine and refine, you go with the, the more, uh, I guess, elevated opinions. But if it doesn't, you, you know, you're right, if, it, if the cocktail doesn't do what it's supposed to do for the person who's gonna walk in off the street, right. then it's not gonna do what it's supposed to do for the informed, right. highly informed, you know, in the trenches minds who spends their entire day thinking about issues of flavor and viscosity and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I like the the yin and the yang aspect that you were talking about with, you know, your your drier, more probably bitter or astringent Mm -hmm. preferences versus Brandon's kind of sweeter dessert cocktails. Um, Can you point out a couple of cocktails on here that kind of show that yin and yang? Absolutely. Um,
1: I would say the last two in the Americas are the epitome of what I was talking about in terms of like those flavor profiles. The banana prescription which is an incredible cocktail and i don't gravitate towards sweet cocktails however i'll have this for dessert any day you know you know what i mean it looks Um, amazing and i believe this is one of brandon's favorite and it's super sexy and the presentation looks like a bananas foster because it comes out you know on fire uh, which we all love and then we talk about the vagrant of 1876 which is my take on the mint julep a little few different things i did here i wanted to keep it really um, really clean and crisp Uh, so what i did was actually wash the bourbon with mint beforehand and that's how you get the mint flavor uh, if you will and it's from that top layer of essential oils and flavor in the mint versus when you have ever had an over muddled mojito and it's just bitter because Mm -hmm. they went to it so you don't have any of that so just nice and clean and refreshing a little bit of green chartreuse for texture when i say a little bit like 0.25 of an ounce and then uh, a little bit of maple syrup for another level of added sweetness outside of the powdered sugar that was used before and then an egg white just to bring some of these what are separately very rambunctious flavors bourbon mint chartreuse maple and use that egg white as a filter just to bring uh, the unity between all those ingredients. And it's so delicious, so delightful. You taste the bourbon because your person who likes to taste bourbon. The maple is just the right amount that doesn't make this a sweet cocktail by a long shot. And Brandon says it's good, <laughs> <laughs> but I would order the banana prescription before I would order this, yeah. but people are going to love it. Right. You, you know what I mean? So it's, seeing those two polar opposites of of what a cocktail could be especially within the same region um take two drastically different terms in a in a a sense of appreciation from two people in in the industry and that that's why he's been such like a great catalyst i won't say gimme pig because certain ones he's like I'm not going to try that one, but it looks good. (laughs) I'm like, no, that one isn't for you. That that one's been tried. We we like that one. Good.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, Well, so two other quick things I want to talk about here Mm -hmm. are the food on the menu, because obviously the cocktails and the bites here have like they've got some kind of relationship. And I want people to understand what you're doing here at Nocturne with that. And then I just wanted a couple of quick thoughts uh, from you on naming cocktails. Okay. Because that's a lot of fun. (laughs) So let's start with the food. Um, Okay. Can you talk about how the food relates to the cocktails and like, like say a guest walks in, how do you explain the relationship between the food and the cocktails? And then also like, how how did the, how did you design the food to pair well with the cocktails?
1: Okay. So this, once again, I would have to, I take my hat off to Chef Brandon. Uh, It was definitely 100% of his vision in terms of the food. Um, What came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm not sure. Uh, As I'm pitching out uh, regions and cocktails, he's saying, okay, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. And I'm like, that sounds amazing, and it makes a lot of sense. And once the menu was finalized, it kind of went together better than I could have expected just because you don't have to have the correlating food with that region like when you do a regional trio you receive all the cocktails within that region but the food you can mix and match very seldomly people do because it just makes so much sense Um, when we go to the Americas where we we use egg whites um, and some really rich flavors you're going to want something salty to like kind of like push through some of the the flavors and the flavor profiles, and also reset the palate for the next cocktail. So you do the chicharrón, um, which is pork rinds, very elevated uh, pork rind, if you will, with lime and paprika, uh, garlic chili. Like it's it's delicious. It's fantastic. And then we go as simple as you know, concha or corn nuts with just sea salt, cracked black pepper. Super easy to execute, but also very tasty, very delightful, and it allows your palate to like I said before, reset and come back to it. Um, The Scandinavian uh, food, which is the gravlax, which also, um, after doing research, we've all said it before, but it actually means the grave of the salmon or the salmon grave, which I think is really good. Um, So it's um, essentially like a a salmon tartare, if you will. But once again, using these ingredients like creme fraiche, chicharron, shallots, a little bit of lemon, Keeps it grounded enough to make sense with how earthy the Scandinavian region is using such unique ingredients like rosemary and fennel and celery and cedar and myrtle and all these really. <laughs> um, what I think on their own are strong flavors, and then you get like a Salmon Tatar, which will have a strong flavor. They kind of meet in the middle and kind of neutralize one another. So you're not so overwhelmed with, you know, the gravlax that you can't see the beauty in the Bartel Godwitz cocktail. And then the Middle East using a ton of ingredients, um, over 50 ingredients w- within that entire region, which is a whole nother podcast, um, <laughs> but, it's not a very sweet um, region. And purposely, I, I didn't want it to be sweet, primarily because it's the first region on the menu. And just based off some science that I know of how people order on the menu, I didn't want them to start with something so sweet. It's probably the most balanced out of all of the regions in terms of, you know, being right in the middle of bitter, booze, sweet. And the dessert for that is essentially like a walnut and date cake. Um, So I would say, think a really upscale Fig Newton power bar type jam, uh, if you will, which is super tasty, but it allows enough richness, but it's not heavy at all, which I think was completely necessary. And then I would have to say my personal favorite um, the Mousse Canard, which is with Western Europe. And all of the Western Europe, once you come in and you, you see the presentation of all the cocktails, it's a very prim and proper region, if you will. I think that's how Western Europeans are perceived, to be very clean and polished and tailored and speak well. So the Mousse Canard, essentially, as you look at the ingredients, is the most bougie peanut butter and jelly sandwich that you ever want to imagine in your life. And it's so delightful. You have the the duck liver, shallots, um, a little cream. Chef actually turns the peanut butter into a liquid and then adds a certain uh, ingredient to it that instantly turns it into powder as it sits atop and then makes this blackberry preserve. Mm. So you put all that together on the little brioche and you have like this incredible PB&J. Like it's unreal. Wow. Yeah, so it's a very spot on Food menu, and I think correlates with their cocktails uh, magically, if you will. Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: but also highly considered, right? This was, yeah. you know, it just as you were talking about the way the food and the and the cocktails pair, it's just so intentional. And uh, you know, even if you step back and instead of looking at the ingredients, you look at those, you know, salt, heat, fat, yeah, acid. Like there's, you can see how the, the the chef sensibility and the mixologist sensibility are playing well together, as opposed to just slapping some bar bar bites on there. You know? <laughs> right, absolutely. So let's talk about naming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I like words. I, I love naming cocktails. Uh, coming up with uh, crazy or um, maybe a little bit more less uh, or less traditional names. Uh, okay. What did you approach? these cocktails with when it comes to naming?
1: Based off of the research, the story that I wanted the cocktail to tell, and was it fun enough for the novice reader and drinker to choose this solely off of the name? That goes into consideration uh, quite often. Um, I've designed menus in the past, where it has this really fun name with intent because it was probably like the hardest one to conceive, you know, and then something that I think will be super, super popular. I give it a different name to kind of lower the traction. So essentially, what happens, the universe balances out in terms of what gets ordered the most or the least it was it formerly the least popular drink that now has the coolest name or was it the most popular uh, cocktail that now has a very sensible name and now balance out the the entire menu um, if you will and a lot of times um, like when i said the middle east is at the top so it'll get ordered the most frequently is to challenge you know listeners and you know patrons alike to go with the unconventional If you see that you're in a venue where they really give a damn about their execution and and how their cocktails are perceived, if you don't like gin, try their gin cocktail. If you're, you know, in dietary restrictions and allergies, like if you're not a fan of mezcal, try their mezcal cocktail. Like they're probably doing something with it to break down whatever stigmatism or whatever bad rap it may have and like present it in a really unique way. And I'm pretty sure I mean, this is 95% of anybody who's really passionate about their cocktails and you order it based on my current recommendation and the fact that the bartender is really charming and he or she is like, you know what, you're going to like this. We put a lot of work into it and you don't like it. They're not going to make you pay for that cocktail. They're going to get you whatever it is that you want. Go out there. Be adventurous. You only live twice. Um, but I, I think it's always worth a shot to try those things that you think you would
0: never, ever enjoy. Yeah. I mean, that's how I go out whenever I go out, which is not as often as I would maybe like to, uh, <laughs> but I always go for the most bizarre, you know, like the you guy to. asked you, yes. like, what, what am I going to drink that I'm just not going to get anywhere else? Um, and I, I do think that you want to look for those hallmarks of quality before you do that. But uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, and the the thing you mentioned about balancing out the universe with like, uh, just is that something you want? I I feel like most bars you have like a cost structure of certain cocktails Mm -hmm. where they want people to be ordering this cocktail way more than the others because they make more money off of that. Right. Is, and what it seems like that's not your approach.
1: It is because it's ingrained in me and it's been ingrained in me for so long doing what I did for many of venues. However, um, since working here, since um, gracefully accepting the position as beverage director, my currency has changed, Um, and my former gratuity is seeing you again, and if I can do that, you'll have the opportunity to try what the most uh, frequently ordered cocktail was, while also showcasing and elevating one of the ones that wasn't but having a newfound respect for it so I'm I'm giving you the opportunity to try the rare versus you going for the common every time and I think with that approach to it not only is you know does that heighten my former uh, currency or gratuity which is relationships and seeing people again but inevitably based on that timeline we're, we're gonna get there eventually yeah you, you know what I mean so when and I, I have the luxury of knowing intimately my menu so I know how to guide uh, my guests the right way and then uh, on the other side of that which I had nothing to do with and now I find it to be a beautiful thing I only have 15 seats in my venue so it's not me fighting through. You know, my bar that's seven deep or four deep on a Friday or Saturday night. Now I really get the time to sit down with you and John and Chris and go through these things and see what you've had most recently and what you loved about that experience. And now let's re-tailor this menu in an unconventional way to elevate your experience. Mm -hmm. And the menu is designed that way that still inevitably brings balance to the menu
0: yeah well those are some really beautiful thoughts on on what uh what bar should be striving for in terms of economics and, and the <laughs> economics of building relationships and bringing people back is, yes is maybe something that doesn't get it always as much press as it should but it, it definitely maps on with everything you've been talking about with designing this menu and with what nocturne is all about so um just really grateful that you were able to to bring that to to our listeners attention do you have time for a couple quick lightning round questions? Uh, yes, of course. Let's do it. <laughs> lightning round. All right. This is probably a terrible question for a bartender and somebody who just spends all their time with cocktails. But what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, uh, what's something that you've recently been obsessed with?
1: Uh, favorite cocktail? Cocktail is a beverage that has three or more ingredients. So it's going to have to be my Belvedere martini Straight up lemon twist, in and out, rinse or driver move. Um, it's been one of my staples. I think it's a very handsome and sexy and sophisticated cocktail. Um, also, the one is all you need. Yeah,
0: there you go. <laughs> it's how I can be a cheap date for myself. <laughs> I like that. I like that. If you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, mm-hmm. what would you be
1: and why? Uh, I'd be a jigger. I'd be a jigger primarily because the jigger gets it gets handled it gets utilized it often depending on the style of bar that you have um, is the afterthought it's like oh I can free pour this I can do this I can do that but the jigger is the rubric in which all of us can be measured in terms of executing something perfectly time and time again and I think that's like an incredible tool for sure
0: yeah so would you be the hourglass-shaped jigger? Would you be the Japanese-style, more a cup shape? Yeah, I would be a Japanese jigger,
1: okay, for sure. Yeah, just because of my actual physical build, I think I shaped like a Japanese jigger.
0: Okay, <laughs> I my stance on jiggers is the Japanese ones are obviously the most elegant-looking and 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 beautiful, but when i'm when i'm doing cocktails at home i have the oxo steel angled measuring jigger that's yes. like those those uh yeah. measuring cups it's right over there yeah it's just so <laughs> utilitarian and the fact that you don't have to uh like flip it over yeah exactly and it's got that little pore spout yep. so you spill less because that was the biggest problem i was having is i was making drinks at home and i would do the kind of the the two-finger grip and then flip it and then mm-hmm. as i flipped into the um the mixer i would spill a
1: little bit. and then you're making a mess and yeah. this is your place and now you got to get the shout out and clean up the carpet. Exactly, exactly. So the only reason why I'm not a fan of that one here, and why it's like kind of over to the side, my venue is too dark to sit inside of it. Uh,
0: there you go. <laughs> there you go. There's always a reason. But you know, you look at behind a bar. There's a reason for everything that is placed somewhere. And there you go. There Perfect it is. reason. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint a picture.
1: Okay. Um, So Jason Statham and I would go to um, some bar in London. I'm not sure what it would be. Um, It would be his choice. He could take me wherever he want. I think his conversation would be so cool. I also think, you know, how people can get a little rowdy at the end of the night, including like ourselves when we go out and and enjoy life in the weekend and I don't think anyone would have a problem <laughs> with Jason and I staying a little bit too late. I think he's probably high up there in terms of people who I would just like to shoot the breeze with, if you will, have a few beers, a few shots of Jameson, and just see where the night took us.
0: What What Jason Statham? Would this be Jason Statham from The Transporter or...? Oh, man. This would be
1: Jason Statham from... This is Jason Statham from...
0: There's just so many to choose I from. I know.
1: Expendables.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's a, good, <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah. That's a great answer. I love it. Okay. Um, so getting more into like recommendations, knowing that uh, we have you as this incredible resource, our listeners out there are trying to bring a little bit of what you have achieved at this highly specialized establishment into their homes. Um, do you have any books or, uh, resources that were helpful for you as you design this menu or as you, um, you know, think or learn about cocktails?
1: Uh, absolutely. There's, there's a ton of books that I have some of them just because I think they're cool. Um, maybe some because I saw them at dead rabbit. Um, Others, because they were recommended by me, and I think I'm halfway through every book. However, the one that I thumb through the most, the one that is most utilitarian, the one that finds its way in my lap every week, the Flavor
0: Bible. Okay. And is that primarily a, like, a chef or a cooking book, or is there, like, a decent, like, cocktail spirits section in there as well?
1: There... Uh, is a nod towards spirits uh, the baseline of all the major spirits if you will however one of the things that um, I try my best to do is to build or create the flavors myself with the produce with the spice with the seasoning so I could take something as simple as our friend vodka and then create the right balance of you know fennel celery and saffron but it was you know a lot of uh research in the flavor bible and it's not always <laughs> looking for the correlating flavor profile and what makes it enhance it's like looking for the contrasting flavor profile and for us to be a very waste not uh venue i try to recycle and reuse as much as the produce as possible and you know have that little green thumb about us so the flavor Bible definitely is high up there.
0: Great. Yeah. That's really good advice. Uh, and speaking of advice, is there any like one or two, like really important pieces of advice that you would, um, recommend to someone who's just starting out their journey as a home bartender?
1: Yes. The first piece of advice I would say, try your best, To make a non-alcoholic beverage that you want to consume more than once i i think it's really easy for the guy who likes bourbon or whiskey he can have three or four manhattans you know um or you know jill who loves tequila we're making margaritas tonight and she'll have three or four of them with you know the right amount of water and and food of course but then what about jill when she gets pregnant Or what about your other friends during Ramadan? Or what about someone who's just taking a break because they did this the night before? And one of the hardest things it is to do in this um, business, I think, is to come up with a non-alcoholic beverage that's so good that you want that again and again and again. Like, that's not easy to do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that will push your creativity outside of just a boost aspect of it and like really develop like your acids and your spirits and uh
0: your balance overall right because if you don't have the spirit if you don't have that alcohol burn there's you know you, you gotta do something to balance right uh, and kind of like re reapproach what that means uh we just had uh nikki blank from sip city switchel which is a dc based switchel company um on the podcast recently we were talking about uh you know al- alternative like non-alcoholic mm-hmm. kind of cocktail replacements and uh, yeah, definitely it seems like those are having a more and more important role behind the bar and in the home. Yes, indeed. So Hakeem, this was amazing. Uh, I'm so excited to go home, get an introduction to this and, and ship it off to the airwaves so everybody can can learn from uh, this process and this experience that you, you've laid out for us. Can you, before we sign off here, just tell people how to... Get reservations and find Nocturne, and um, just contact information for how to uh, connect with Nocturne and with you digitally.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, social media, of course, you can find us Nocturne Bar DC. I am Team HH underscore. The best way to make a reservation in our very intimate setting is going to our website and clicking the link visit and it'll send you straight to Open Table and list out all the reservations that we have for you. Um, We're open Wednesday through Saturday, uh, six to midnight. However, when we're here later nights, we do keep a number on our door that you can text um, just in case we have reservations that finish up early or if there's a walk-in and we have the space for you, we're more than welcome to. And you can get that phone number from me off of the website, as well as sending an email to info at uh, nocturnebardc.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Hakeem, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we can have a round two at some point. in the Yeah, looking forward to it. Cheers. Awesome, thank
1: you. Hey
0: everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, menu planning insights from Hakeem Hamid, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.